0: since before I was born, I think that the Sinalo cartel or whatever the cartel was at the time always had their links into, you know, a city like Chicago. Um, When I was born, actually, my father was in prison. He was a drug trafficker, a big drug trafficker who worked with different organizations. And, you know, he was a big heroin dealer. And that was my introduction to the drug trade through my father. At an early age, he started teaching me and my brother, you know, the business of drug trafficking. You know, we... Ran our first load across the border at before we were eight years old.
1: Obviously, El Chapo, um, as such an infamous name,
0: he wasn't easy to deal with. That's for sure. Our, you know, our first deals with him. You just to make it clear. You know, uh, his organization kidnapped my brother.
1: Boom. Here we go. A boom uh, with no uh, video, just audio right now because the guest, Margarito Flores, also known as Jay, short for Junior, is preferring not to show his face because he was a cooperator with the US government against Sinaloa Cartel, against El Chapo. ...against Arturo Beltran Leyva... ...against El Mayo... ...in fact his evidence... uh, ...was using indictments against... ...more than 50... ...drug traffickers... ...but he was also a drug trafficker himself... ...at a... ...major level... ...he confessed along with his twin brother... ...Pedro Flores... ...also known as Pete... ...to trafficking... ...more than 60 tonnes of cocaine as well as heroin and crystal meth. If you're an American, if you're somewhere up on the East Coast or, in fact, anywhere in the United States and had a line of cocaine between about 1998 and 2008, there's a very good chance it went through the Flores Twins organization. Uh, but now he is looking for redemption. He's done some time in prison, 12 years, as well as cooperating. Came out and is looking to try and change things. Now, in this conversation, you can find Margarito around other places. A lot of you will be familiar with him from other places now. He's been more of a media presence. This conversation is more of a uh, candid, casual talk. Uh, I got in touch with him and he was very generous with his time. You know, what became a short conversation turned into a long conversation. And so this is, this is that, that talk. What was it like in Chicago, growing up in Chicago and that first links into trafficking and to linking up with the biggest players in Mexico?
0: Oh, for the most part, um, you know, since before I was born, I think that the Sinalo cartel or whatever the cartel was at the time always had their links into, you know, a city like Chicago, I think. As migrants and Mexicans started actually migrating into Chicago, you know, for most people that don't know, I was like born into this, right? Uh, uh, when I was born, actually, my father was in prison. He was a drug trafficker, a big drug trafficker who worked with different organizations. And, you know, he was a big heroin dealer who was uh, arrested for, uh, you know, 11 kilos of black tar heroin at the time, received a 10-year sentence. And uh, after a good time, he he was he came home when I was around seven, seven and a half, and that was my introduction to the drug trade through my father. At an early age, he started teaching me and my brother, you know, the business of drug trafficking. You know, we ran our first load across the border at before we were eight years old. You know, wow,
1: wow. So, so, so when you went up, you went down with him to Mexico, and you were like, "What?" He was driving it in a car over the border, or how did he get over?
0: Oh, so yeah, we actually thought it was a vacation. We Went uh, to Mexico on our, you know, first trip out of Chicago. You know, we were, you know, my father was in prison, and uh, you know, we had a hard life. You know, grew up very poor. You know, my family was in, on uh, government assistance at the time. So uh, he came home, and he was a provider at heart. You know, he was used to having money, and and he felt, I guess, it was like his obligation to, you know, provide and provide money fast. So we took the, you know, it was small car took the road to Mexico, uh, it Was a, it was a fun experience for my brother and I, for sure. Um, went down to Mexico, and basically, on that trip, he actually took us out to the mountains and basically introduced us to our first drug, which was going to be marijuana. And we um, he took us through every step where we were, you know, a part of the, you know, cultivating, of it, the harvesting, right? Picked out which plants he wanted, you know, we had to let them sit and dry out and all that stuff, and. Compressed the marijuana at that time into, you know, it was considered Mexican, right? Marijuana into, some, you know, it was 220 pounds, I believe. Now
1: that and was, we, was
0: lower, or well, where was that in Mexico? No, at that time we actually went. It was we went to to the uh, mountains in what was considered the Zacatecas, Durango, right? That area on this side of it, um, and you know, my father at that time had, you know, knew many people and that's our I guess that's where our education started um we he taught us how to you know take down the gas tank and um uh, we we fished out the you know the gas I mean the drugs right the gas from the gas tank and and we're witness and helped them in every part of it and that's what was going to be the next you know that's what going to be our job for the next you know three to four years I think uh and um we took our, our first ride back up to the United States. When, when we actually got to the border, it was going to be our first time we were interrogated by federal officers, I tell everyone. My dad and my, my mom I didn't bring our birth certificates on our first trip. And my father had, you know, 220 pounds of, of, of marijuana hidden in a gas tank with no birth certificates <laughs> for my brother and I. So, of course, you know, uh, Custom Border Patrol, uh, sent us to a second inspection but we were twins that you know me and my brother twins we looked alike at that time you know there's not a lot of twins we were still like a big deal that we looked so much alike and um, they took separated from our parents and my father I, I always recall this it was the first time I actually like remember like not understanding something when he said don't say nothing like I knew exactly what he meant but he was worried that they were going to separate us right and they, mm. didn't, they
1: didn't think to search for the marijuana. They didn't think to search. The no, ketchup.
0: but my, I remember seeing my father. It was like, a, you know, where they, they inspected the cars. It was like an office and it had glass. It was all glasses. And I could see my father pacing back and forth. What was it like? I mean, did you consider,
1: I mean, when you're like eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old doing that stuff, did you kind of think I'm not like a regular kid here in school? My life's a bit of a kind of crazy movie. Or, or, or what, how did you process that as a kid, oh, wow. having that experience compared to everyone else in your class who's like, you know?
0: Yeah, I, you know what? That's a good question. I can of explain this to the committee a little bit. You know, I didn't have your regular childhood. I'm not saying I had the, I was the only one. But at that time, growing up in, in the States, even growing up in a place like Little Village, it's a, it's a working class neighborhood we were different even early on because everyone had their mom and their dad you know we still have that generation of mexicans that don't believe in divorce people went to work every day our dad being in prison was still rare like so we were really kind of like mm, treated a little bit different because of that but you know i have older brothers and ignorance right you know what gang culture was like uh, all his friends, the whole neighborhood basically would hang out at our house when we were kids because there was no father to, you know, say no. You know, my mom just would be like, okay, this is what friends do. And uh, and that's kind of started the trend of like our family being looked at a little bit different, right? You know, to other families who come from Mexico, right? Settle down there, go to work every day. And here's his house, right? That's rare. There's no father, and there's a bunch of, you know, uh, teenagers that have a bunch of friends who are, you know, gang members. Now, what, and, kind,
1: of gang, what kind of gang were they in? And what gang were they in? And, and you never you never got into the gang life yourself on that side of things?
0: You know what? My, my brothers were growing up. I mean, they were uh, what was considered probably the most violent, the most organized organization, which was the Lion King's. And that's going to play a big part on, you know, my brother's drug trafficking time. And uh, but you know, we're talking about my you know seven, eight years old. So for sure I was already, you know, kind of uh living that part of the world where my brother was, you know, a Land King. My brother's 15 years older than me. You know, at that age, I still growing up. I'm I'm basically being raised in that kind of culture, that those environments. So by the time, you know, my father comes around, uh, him being in prison in the state, actually, he comes from you know, being ra- around gang members. Uh, so he uh wasn't happy about it he kicked my brothers out the house fast it was it didn't take long like what, what's going on you know like he he despised gang members believe it or not uh, it, it's just this weird contradiction yeah, yeah. Uh, he despised them because he was in prison with them he didn't understand you know you know their reasoning or why they would you know have to like what we consider in Chicago gangbang or whatever but um for instance him, Coming home and kicking my older brothers out the house kind of pushed them away to having to provide for themselves now in a real manner, which led them to drug trafficking. And and here I am, you know, you know that separation between my older brothers and me and my uh, twin brother is like he's giving us an education here, and they're learning the cocaine business on the streets. Okay,
1: just taking a quick break here. Uh, Just to say, if you like this podcast, if you like my work and you want to find more of it, then please go on to www.crashoutmedia.com. That's C-R-A-S-H-O-U-T-M-E-D-I-A.com. That's where you can see loads of my stories, my podcasts, interviews with active cartel members, interviewed with former cartel members law enforcement dan crenshaw and congress in the anti-cartel task force analysis reportage and everything about organized crime and drugs trying to find truth trying to find answers trying to find better ways here you could subscribe for free or if you like it and want to support it and get access to everything then just five dollars
0: a month gets you in there I think the gang culture being around in that vi- environment uh, taught my brother and I a lot. It was going to teach us how to succeed in, in in that environment later. But we also never joined a gang. You know, my older brother, that's something that he forbade us and and made sure he didn't. Uh, by the time I was 12, 13 years old and my dad went on the run again, left us where our older brother. He was already, you know, a kingpin himself um, in the cocaine business. How, how much school
1: did
0: you do? How, how, I actually went to high school. Um, I was actually, you know, this is a good question. No one ever asked me that, but I was actually, uh, for the most part, my brother and I actually did really well in school. Um, we ended up going to a public high school right in my neighborhood. And uh, in my junior year, uh, I was actually kicked out of school by... Um, Law enforcement, you know, them understanding who we were, they felt like, you know, I wasn't part of a gang at that time. No way involved in gangs, but that was the environment we were in. And my older brother was, a, you know, he was a shot caller. Mm-hmm. And them understanding that part of it, it's like they kind of didn't, you were trying to clean up the school and basically gave us an ultimatum and uh, we were kicked out of school. But then I actually ended up getting a diploma by an alternative of uh like high school where you go basically it's like a GED but fast track you know and and get a high school diploma my twin brother did actually attend uh college he did a few semesters in college um, but by then we were already you know in our own world of drug trafficking so
1: you became very big very young in terms of in terms of numbers in trafficking mm-hmm. did it just blow up mean, like, did you start mm-hmm. kind of small it just grew and grew and grew very fast or did you see yourselves right away like as kind of entrepreneurs in this or how do you how did things escalate so fast?
0: I guess with my background, right? With my father, you know, being in Mexico, that's what people like I, I feel like there's two sides of us. You know, growing up in Chicago, growing around up around those gangs and that culture. And then growing up in Mexico where my father made sure he introduced us to everyone and 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 made sure we treated everyone with respect. And coming from a small town, which was like my second home, as you know, it's all about respect, how you treat people, mannerisms, you know, what your last name was, and how we carried ourselves, I think, came naturally through my father. And so, um, you know, by the time we're 13, 13 going on to 17, we basically become um, my older brother's helpers in the business. And he, by that time, is working with the Juarez cartel, the Sinaloa cartel—you know—it was still one organization, and uh, and just being around the business, all day, being around his associates, you know, I was able to to understand the the even the Sinaloa or the cartel slang back then, you know, when when people were wearing silk shirts with open with the gold chains and stuff like that, and being around them, and uh, being around you know both environments where my brother actually went from being the kingpin in the neighborhood to actually starting to distribute, you know, especially to black gangs in Chicago. Uh, and I was able to actually be a part of that and everything I was learning at the time. Um, so when my brother got indicted, I was just turning 17. It's like uh, one of his sources apply, which was going to be a important person later on in, in the Senado cartel. Um, sent for my brother and I and, you know, offered us a load of drugs, which was at that time our first deal was going to be our own deal was going to be 30 kilos of cocaine, which is, you know, at that time. You know, for someone like, you know, I was 17 and it being our first deal, like it didn't seem like a lot for us, but it was a lot, you know, under the circumstances. We sold our first 30 kilos that day, you know, received 50 kilos the next day. And basically, by the time we were 18, we were already moving anywhere from three to 400 kilos a month. And I guess, you know, that's gonna that start off like uh, a run, I guess that, you know, just seeing the business, you know, as a business and seeing the other side of it, I think, uh, not being part of a gang, the way we were raised, I think that that helped, helped us a lot. And having those relationships, you know, from early on, and, being able to you know be businessmen I think is what kind of propelled us um, um by the time I was in 1920 uh we were pushing well over 1000 kilos in a month in Chicago and, you know I explained this like this is without me ever going to Mexico like this is the drugs are already in Chicago i um, being basically a wholesale distributor for the for the Sinaloa cartel and at that time for the Gulf cartel uh, uh, me i have no direct ties to them um you know i have a middleman and at you know i'm 18 19 years old 20 years old i'm making two three million dollars a month
1: now, now now like do you think you were kind of in the right place at the right time or or or, or the fact you had such good connections and it was when i mean what why did, how did you blow up so fast uh, 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 or just the, the nature of the drug game. What do you think, looking back on it now? What made you just become this big, this far?
0: Just to make it clear, you 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 know this with your background. Just mm. doesn't the drug trafficking is not easy. There's mm. a you know people fail at it every day. Mm. So um, I don't know if my brother and I knew what a successful drug trafficker was, other than you know what we would see in the news at that time, which was like the Lord of the Skies or Caro Quintero. uh... The movie Scarface to us was also a great movie, but it never motivated us to die like him, I think. You know, it's that story, right? And I feel like what made my brother and I successful, that somehow, some way, growing up, we never wanted to be like anyone else. Mm. We always said, you know, this, like, we never changed who we were. Uh, we got into business, you know, for economics reasons, and we it, we never let anything, you know... Change that—that that we were there for one reason. we were obviously obviously—I—I I feel like—intelligent enough not to get involved in certain situations, but also I think it goes back to who we, how we were raised, the simple principles that people take for granted, respect, doing the right thing, you know, going out your way for others. Sometimes, like some of these stuff that sounds like you're—you're—I'll be talking about the Bible, but in the drug trade, it was always about what type of person you were, and. That is what actually I felt like took us, you know from where we started and where we're gonna end up at, you know, um you know all those you know simple things that people think that are not a necessity, right? It made I think also our parents, we were young mm-hmm. you know, they didn't think take us as a threat. I didn't want to be taken as a threat. so that made you know the people we were involved with and associates it made them more comfortable and then returned kind of. Uh, We would build these friendships or these relationships with people. And, you know, it was, I I think for them, it's always like, I know these guys ain't going to do me wrong. Mm. But in reality, it's not because I was fearful. It's just that that wasn't who we were. Um, And I think that actually helped us. And it helped us all along the way. actually helped us solidify some of the, you know, those relationships we have with the biggest jugglers in the world. That I didn't want to be them. So when you
1: did meet... Chapo. You met Chapo. You met Arturo Beltran-Leva?
0: Yes, Arturo Beltran-Leva. I mean, who I met? I met probably, you know, some of the biggest jugglers. I met Nacho Coronel. Okay. Alfredo, Alfredo Beltran-Leva, um Beltran-Leva. Uh, Mayo Sambada. Okay. Uh, wow, I mean, you know, big jugglers. I worked with Lobo Valencia um, from the Millennial Cartel, Mancho. Okay. Um, so... You know, in in our time from like working with, you know, you know, in Chicago to our time in Mexico, like, you know, we dealt with, you know, Azul's sons, right? You know, he's deceased now. Like, I mean, too many people to actually, you know, uh, uh, that we had some type of association with, you know, or or understanding, you know, from Los Queenies to to, uh, Noel Salgado to, I mean, there's so many individuals that we were uh around or associated with or did business with you know
1: obviously El Chapo um as such an infamous name and, and obviously you know later on you testified what did you think of him as a person what was he like on a personal level to deal with
0: mm, he wasn't easy to deal with that's for sure you know if you take down you know all the drug lords, actually had business relationship. he was probably the most difficult one. Uh, which is, you know, something that people don't really realize. Um, our, you know, our first dealings with him, you, just to make it clear, you know, uh, his organization kidnapped my brother at that time, which was, uh, Chapo Isidro was still part of his organization. It was his, you know, under his command, who, you know, Chapo Isidro, who now is, you know, head of his own organization. He's going to actually, you know, be a friend of mine later, but, my brother was kidnapped by him um over a debt. And uh even when he had evidence that, you know, we didn't owe the debt, he still made me pay on his money. And um, he was a lot harder to deal with that we would rather deal with other people like his underlings because they were more on the business side and you know, we would just take care of the business, you know, and and kind of try to keep him on a you know, need to know basis for you know, but for sure he he wasn't uh that easy to deal with. Um I also think it was because he did look at my brother and I as real, like as businessmen, and he always knew that, you know, we were going to try to push, you know, as much as we could. And and to him, he, you know, he his, uh he had a strong demeanor. So uh, I guess we would just try to get away, uh, get away with as much as we could. As you could tell in the recorded call, right? Yeah. That wasn't to him, us asking him. You know what, what bothered him, what people don't realize, is that, in the drug business, you don't do that. You don't receive a shipment of drugs and then try to get a better price once you have them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so like the prices you deal with these, this is so a bricks of cocaine.
0: Uh, Just to make it clear, tons, right? Tons of cocaine.
1: T- tons of cocaine. Okay. You're negotiating we by, by tons by this time. So, what kind mm-hmm. of price? I mean, what price would you pay them and what price would you sell at oh. with profit margin
0: on the, uh, yeah. So the business, I mean, consists of different deals, right? I mean, it's kind of complex, right? Because that's a book on its own.
1: Mm.
0: For the most part, uh, we entered into a partnership, right? That's what the cartel is, right? It's, it's a gr- group of people, right? Working together, you know, for one cause, which was, you know, at that time was to make money. And uh, basically, there was times like we would set our own price, which was going to be the fairest price you know, the cheapest price in whatever city we were actually receiving the drugs at. And people, uh, just to make it clear, uh, we never took advantage. It was like, what's the price? And if we said the price is this, and I need them for this, then that's what it was. But rest assured that they were not going to come back and say, did you just like... You know, like I, I didn't have to I wasn't sleep good at night to make sure that it was a fair business, that they were never going to come back and say, hold on. Are you taking advantage of, you know, what you're doing? So they um, for the most part, the organizations, the cartels respected our business acumen, how we view things, how we did things. So, you know, we basically set the price or we'll negotiate when it came to Mexico. And they always gave us a, a you know, 10, 15 percent at cost. You know, just to make sure that our organization, you know, was making money and could keep up um any of the losses.
1: So, what would the numbers be? I mean, like, would you buy for say twelve k and sell for eighteen k, or what would the kind of numbers um, yeah,
0: be? yeah, again, depending on what you know what the business was. If we we're coming from Colombia, obviously it's different. But just say if it was um if we were receiving a shipment of drugs in LA. Uh, and just say that was a price it was twelve thousand then you know I would sell in Chicago for nineteen five you know or in d c for twenty five you know depending on where we're going, you know Canada, we would sell them for you know thirty eight thousand forty thousand whatever the case, you know different price would you know in different regions had different prices, and we we would base it off of that
1: how how i mean the network for moving it around the United States. I mean, was this with, you know, it was, it was trucks, I understand, with trader trucks. I mean, you you buy, you, you create your own trucking companies or you just get truck drivers to carry it. Or how does that whole business work of, of moving it around the USA?
0: Yeah, so the means were, were there's a lot of means, right? But for the most part, um, as I try to point out, you know, our organization being successful, and I was working with, you know, uh, the Sinalo Cartel at the time as a whole, right? because you do have different people that have different metas, you know, but for the most part, how big organizations work, um, they're going to work with something that's going to be continuous, something that you know, um, they have different projects going at one time, but for us, you know, we did use trains, we did use airplanes, we did use uh, uh, different, you know, transportation means, but for the most part, it was uh tractor trailers, long haul, um uh, Semis. So that was our our of you know, transportation. And uh, what we would do, would, we would actually find independent contractors, uh, independent drivers that had their own, you know, that worked as independent contractors and, you know, find legitimate loads and haul them across, you know, the country.
1: So, some of the other people you're dealing with in Mexico, I mean, the, the big, big names. So, obviously, uh, El Mayo, what would you think of, uh, of El Mayo as, a, as an individual? Uh, you know, he's kind of a mythical status now but what's he like on a on a personal level
0: this is the tricky part uh i'm talking about you know how i felt with him you know back at that present time I, you know when i'm talking about something when it comes back to my life i always like to put myself in that you know f- mindset state and and feeling you know to me he reminded me a lot of you know even nicer probably than my father he took a liking to my brother and i uh we had a very good relationship you know he was a fierce man but he was also one of the you know most i think fairest like he was you know like it's hard to explain um or he i do feel like he had genuine like love and respect for us because uh he looked at us young and you know he had enough people in his organization that he respected that had nothing but good things to say about us so early on he welcomed them welcomed us and he was actually when it came to prices when it came to any type of business he was the one that would be like whatever you guys decide and you know what here's an extra you know something for you know for you guys so um yes um it doesn't surprise me that he continues to be you know the head of the organization and and the most successful one for sure
1: how about uh, Arturo Beltran Labor
0: now on the business side i think He's unmatched when it comes to business. Uh, he was fair. He was probably I, what I consider to be, when, in terms of economics, probably at that time, he was probably making more money than Chapo and, and Mayo easily. Um, his organization basically, depending on people like me, where you know he would bring you know large amounts of, of drugs into you know Mexico and other place in the world and he really didn't traffic drugs into the united states as a lot of people might assume he left that for you know individuals like me his brother you know and feather at the time and other big drug tr- drug traffickers and that's what i try to explain to people that you know the cartel as a whole it's you know the cartel is as strong as the people that are in it right and there's different you know entities which you know some will be on the business and some are in the violent side of it and and for him you know you know I, he brought in a shipment of 20 25 tons of cocaine at a time and you had to make a reservation and uh in mexico you deal in cash so um he had you know he would give good prices he was a uh, a businessman fair businessman and uh I, it was easy to deal with him he was a calculator like i i remember like I would grab my phone to, like, calculate a number or something. And before I even push the number, he was already, you know, telling you what it was. Uh, big numbers. Like, he was a, a, a one of the best businessmen I feel like uh, there was in 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 that world of drug trafficking. I
1: always got that impression that when I was reporting on this stuff back in the day. I felt Arturo just seemed, this guy Beltran Leva seems to be the biggest one in terms, you know, he's not as, as infamous, but He's, But then he also has a reputation I've heard some stories about him Being a, On a personal level quite a scary guy I mean you hear the kind of you know, Cannibalism this kind uh, of
0: Again stuff. I and think so, it's yeah. to It goes back to this uh, My personal what I've seen Was that it's always about legacy And, and you studied I mean you worked And you, you've, you follow the cartels As a whole to them legacy Who you are your name You know it's always important I feel like you know, from my perspective, from my view of, of knowing him, that they got caught up, and who you know, the biggest always, right? That the the question, who was bigger, you know? And he didn't like for the world or for people to think that he wasn't him, that he wasn't, you know, considered the Lord of the Skies, and that there was another, you know, you know, he self proclaimed boss of bosses, yeah. and. And what he would do to show people who he was, was the things that you hear about. Violent. No limit when it came to violent. You know, he would, you know, do things to put exclamation points on the way he did things. And I seen that part of him. Again, for the most part, I think that it always goes back to my relationship with these bosses. I didn't want to be them. You know, I have the saying that, you know, in in the States, you know, people get money, they get a car, chain or whatever comes with that life. In Mexico, you you have a little name for yourself. You get a little bit of money. The first thing they want to do is get in a little army. They want to have sicarios and hitmen. And they want to play the role of the big drug lords. And to the drug lords, that's offensive, you know, to the bosses. You want to take my spot. <laughs> and they're treated the way they behave with violence. Uh, my brother and I, on the other hand, you know, we're here for the business and they treat us like that and from had a great relationship, you know, with him. And I remember one Christmas he called and said, you know, I got a Christmas gift for you. And he always would give away these like, you know, expensive vehicles. You know, uh, people don't know. I'm sure you heard about this. He would buy 25, 30 Range Rovers at a time. He would order, you know, 20, 30 pickups to give away as gifts. Right. And uh, I'm thinking, wow, he's gonna give me uh, a gift, like you know. He, he was always generous, and uh, he said, "I got 1,800 kilos right there, Temperum. I was like, I, "Like, boss, no, I can't. I can't. You know, it's Christmas time. It's like right before the holidays." I said, "I don't, I don't have, you know, the funds." He said, "I'm, I'm not asking you for the funds. I'm gonna, you know, lend them to you." uh, (laughs) I'm going to front you with the kilos. But in Mexico, like I said, there's no consignment. And I said, sir, I can't take them. Because, you know, I'm told in Spanish. I'm going to end up, you know, not keeping up when you want to get paid because it wasn't like planned. And he had me on speaker. and He said, and that's why I'm calling you. (laughs) He said, because anyone else. Would have said, where do I pick them up? You, on the other hand, are saying you don't want to do it because you don't want to, you know, uh, leave a bad taste in my mouth. And that's what I'm calling you sent from. You pay me when you're ready.
1: Now, okay, this is on the on the Mexico side, on the U.S. The Mex- on, on the Chicago side, I mean, you're running this massive distribution hub in Chicago. So people, are all the gangs in Chicago are buying from you. People are coming from all over that the East Coast. Did you have to, I mean, how was that trying to run an operation like that? Did you have to end up using violence to keep things running there? Did you just kind of just, how did you manage to like keep everything such a big
0: operation? To manage, I mean, the operation was, you know, when you go back and look at it, you know, the scale and uh, consistency of the operation, you know, we were trafficking anywhere from 2,500 to 3,500 kilos a month, you know, trafficking them to over a dozen cities in the U.S. and Canada, being on the business side, I feel like not only were we able to pick and choose like the right people to deal with, we, we took losses, but, you know, for the most part, I'd rather take that loss than actually, you know, resort to violence. That's what, how we actually uh, handled our business. We, what we did was that we made it so that if anyone thought twice about robbing us or did rob us or, you know, try to take advantage of us, like they had nowhere else to go, but hopefully retire because they were not going to be able to sell drugs anymore because we are the ones that kind of controlled, you know, the drug trade basically. So it it was one of those situations where just because of the business, and the way we ran it. It's like, there's nowhere you could actually turn to, right. You know, without there, you're not going to be able to take a load of drugs from us or try to compete with us because there's no competition. Basically, we I feel like we had a monopoly when it came to the cities we were in uh, because we always had the best prices and we always had the best quality because we had those relationships. And it took quite a few relationships, as you just heard about the people that were kind of in our life some way, somehow to actually keep that going as far as our time. in you know, at that particular time, you know, in the organization, we we're unmatched. There's no one else um that could actually you know and i say this all the time you know to to people in, in the classes that being successful at both ends of you know being in the united states and in mexico is unique because you know this might sound you know cocky or but chapo mayor Arturo couldn't do what we did in the united states but yeah i could do what he they did in mexico that makes you know any sense
1: the America, the american side that's the side which hasn't really been a lot of journalists in Mexico complain that no, we never hear about how it's working on the American side, and that's the big complaint from journalists down here. that hasn't really been told, Although that now we're kind of hearing it with, you know, your story and some others. Now, I covered, you know, some of your your, your story back in the time in my in my first book, and you know, maybe I got some things right or wrong there. But my my understanding was there was this this war happened between Beltran Leva and Chapel. And that started to kind of put pressure on your side, because they were fighting over who you're working for. Is that correct? Or how did that when that war exploded in in Sinaloa, and I was covering that around the time in Kulakan back in those days, how, what did that feel like for you when that was happening?
0: So now here comes for the tricky part. Yeah. As I told this recently, I told this to Congress. I. Yeah. You know, I feel like if I ever had an issue with anything that was portrayed was on the government side was that they took something that my brother and I did voluntarily and they shaped it into what sounded, you know, wh- whatever they were, you know, wanted to uh, promote was that we were giving out tomatoes or that were threatened, you know, by the two most violent drug cartels, the most powerful drug cartels I want to tell you, in the world at that time, which we were. Um, again, me being in that world, since I was seven, I tried to explain to this. Being threatened by drug cartels or members of drug cartels was a part of my everyday life. We were under the gun each and every day. And you covered enough with these stories knowing that that you, you understand where I'm coming from. What always kept my brother and I alive, I think, was instinct. You know, we had already, you know, our family had suffered tremendously by that time. And, you know my kids were getting older and I didn't want my kids to grow up like the way I grew up. And, you know, it was coming to a point where I could see the line being, you know, drawn in the sand. That's what people like to say that, you know, either I was gonna, you know, it was gonna come to, you know, a point in return for us that we're not going to be able to continue to be who we were as individuals or, and, in, and have that, what we thought was more compass, right. Of not crossing the line. It was gonna get to a point where, where it was gonna, you know, we were not gonna have a choice, and that didn't sit well with us. Um, uh, I felt like you know my kids were you know getting older, and I was seeing my kids being around certain environments that I didn't feel comfortable with, and it was only gonna continue you know escalate, especially with you know what I seen was coming, and I think that for the most part, my brother and I. And, and it's hard, it's kind of this one, it's that, you know, we thought we we're good people, you know, to us, it was a business. And it took, you know, marrying my wife, who, you know, and my brother's wife are both uh, daughters of law enforcement who, you know, it's it's hard where it's like, they'd be like, no, that, you know, like, it doesn't matter. You're, you're still not doing the right thing. And them wanting more for us for sure had an impact. And I, you know, I had one of those moments where I would be like, okay, well, what's, you know. I think every drug trafficker gets to a point where it's like, I wish there was a way. And I remember I would pray on that all the time. And, you know, I say this that I would be like, how? You know, there's no way. And, you know, I felt like I had a, a spiritual epiphany one day where I woke up with this idea of, of saying I could cooperate. You know, it, it was an easy thing to do. I felt like it was going to be the only way I could like rid myself of even family members, right? This was the, all the life we all knew. And I wanted to do something good for my family. And my brother and I, you know, we talked it out and, you know, it was a risk that we we're taking a gamble. You covered those stories back then. Uh, there was a war of, you know, coming and we we're going to risk our life to cooperate against these. You know, powerful drug traffic, trafficking organizations and cartels, right? In the likes of Miles Zambada and Chapo Guzman, Tuva Chanleba. And risk our life to try just for the benefit of hopefully getting some credit, you know, for our cooperation. And I think that gets overlooked. I mean, everyone who's, you know, intelligent enough will say, well, you cooperated from March of 2008 to, you know, November 30th, 2008 against drug cartels. Yeah. While I was in Mexico. Wow. While. In Mexico. Wow.
1: Well,
0: then the war started, you know, officially probably by April. And, you know, those threats came, you know, once the war started, you know, and it probably progressed, but I was already cooperating. The government for sure knew that we were threatened, but we were working undercover. And, and I think that the fact that I risked my life to do the right thing gets overlooked. And that's the only thing I won't ever give up, you know, that thank God my brother and I survived. And, you know, if it was for a selfish reason or for whatever reason, I know I'm never going to be able to undo those wrongs. But we did it. That's the difference.
1: You, now you, you did time in federal prison. Was it in federal prison you did time? And was it like what was it like doing time? Uh, that was after you'd cooperated. And so you were still were you in danger there? Did you have to be like segregated?
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I turned myself at the end of t- November 2008. Um, it took several years for me actually to get my prison sentence. You know, I I got sentenced in January of 2015 to 14 years in prison, which I had to serve exactly 12 years for. I spent, in in those 12 years, I spent almost three years segregated, which is probably the most horrible thing you had to go through as as a human being, I think. Uh, Especially for me who have a twin brother who, you know, you're separated, you're, you know, alone in a 24 hour a day lockdown, some similar to what uh, Chap was going through today. um, yeah, prison, you know, it, it was a long time. I had plenty of time to think about what was going to be the next chapter in my life. Uh, there's plenty of times where, you know, you know, wish I felt like I was always a little bit more intelligent, but I felt like the stupidest thing was that I entered the drug trade. Um, and you know, I spent, you know, 12 years, my brother and I, and um, basically we're, we're placed in a Woodtech for prisons, which is still prison, just a little bit more, they add different security measures to keep you, you know, kind of safe, you know, as, as, as possible. So how not now you're 42
1: years old um, and you're kind of rebuilding a life outside of this world. I mean, how does that feel like, Um, you know, what's it like trying to do that? How do you feel, you know, right now inside trying, trying to do this, talking to police, talking to the people who used to go after you, you know, what, what's it like trying to do that? And, and, and uh, what do you see now in the world about where this this is going with this trafficking and stuff?
0: So, for the most part, having that time in prison, like my, my family has suffered a lot. Some of through our own choices, you know, that we have to be responsible for. And I feel like I have this, like, uh, feeling or this need to do something with, you know, all my knowledge and all my expertise. I feel like there's something missing. And... I believe in, in, you know, second chances and redemption. I, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe that I was forgiven for my sins. And now what do I do with that? You know, and the Bible always says that you, you share your suffering, you share your testimony. And I shared it already in a way, right? In courts. And, but I think this time it was a little bit different. It's like, you know, to me, it's means to me for my children, for what's left of my legacy, because I'm always talking about how these drug traffickers are always chasing legacy. I think I kind of, I, uh, uh, took that and I'm like you know what I want to make sure that by the time I leave here that my legacy is something positive that I was able to you know leave a good impression for my children and and for all those people who who have suffered from drug trafficking you know that there is a way where we can actually make a difference and make some change for good
1: okay so you've got to the end of this podcast and if you got to the end then you're seriously interested in this subject so come along and check out www.crashoutmedia.com get yourself a free subscription check out stories analysis interviews about the narco war and how to want to find a way out of this And if you like it and want to support it, take out five bucks a month to make all this happen and get bigger and better. Uh, And uh, check out the other podcasts I have right here in the Narco Chronicles series. Uh, Stay well, stay safe and see you next time.